0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father, we come before your throne. Lord, humbly, but also excited that you are in a God who not only loves his creation but cares for the ones that you have called out of your creation to be in relationship with you. And Father, we thank you for the great example that you have given us, and that is of that sacrificial Lamb, your son. Father, how he humbled himself from the glory of heaven so to be with his creation, to be a willing sacrifice for his creation and that is for us the ones who rebelled against you, the ones who sinned against you, the ones who, Father were searching for substitutes other than your love and your grace and your mercy Father we thank you that through his humble obedience Lord that we too can call you Father and that you uh, first loved us and that we may also through that love that we've experienced with you and that you have shown to us can allow that love to flow in and through us and to others Father again thank you for Christ and his example and may we strive to follow his example in our daily walk Father you have given us so much so much more than what we deserved and Father all of these are gifts from you And, Father, may we all each day remember that we are called to be good stewards of those gifts, that we should use those gifts not selfishly for ourselves, but, Father, for the opportunity to seek uh, opportunities and look for opportunities in the people you bring into our lives to share those gifts, to think of others more than we think of ourselves, to allow that love you so graciously showed us, to flow through us and and reveal itself in love to others. And, Father, the reason we do that, Lord, is for your glory, for the opportunity to be a part of what you are doing in this world, and that is growing your kingdom. Father, thank you for allowing us to be participants in that, and that through your wisdom that you have decided that that's the way that you would grow your kingdom, is through those you have called and those who have believed, and that our lives would shine forth as light in this dark world. Father, again, thank you that we can gather in your house and hear the truth of your word spoken. And Father, we, our hearts are eager with anticipation as your faithful servant, Greg, will be taking the podium and, Father, speaking truth of your word to us to hear. Father, we pray that even now your spirit has prepared our hearts to receive this word. And, Father, where there are areas in our lives that we have failed you and fall short, may your spirit convict us. May your spirit draw us into repentance. And, Father, and also those areas where you have so truly blessed us, Lord, may we celebrate with you and that you have chosen us to be your ones to spread the good news of your gospel. Father, may your word move in power today and may it return to you in a way that is pleasing to you and for the reason that you sent it forth. Father, again, thank you for this day and the days that you give us ahead that we can be vessels used by you and grow in your kingdom. We'll be sure to do it all for your honor and for your glory. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.
1: I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 5. We've made our way to the final chapter in our study of James. I was talking to someone this past week. And they had asked me what I was preaching at the moment, and I told them that I was preaching through the book of James. And their response was, oh, I love James. It's my favorite book. And I thought, I didn't say, I just thought What in the world is wrong with you? One of three things, either you have no idea what James is talking about Number two, you do have some sense for what James is talking about You just think it's about everybody else other than you Uh, Or you're just some kind of masochist who loves to endure pain on a regular basis I have to say, James has been a fruitful study for me as I've journeyed my way through it and preparing to, to preach these messages. But I can't say that I've enjoyed James. James has assaulted my life on a number of fronts. And I suspect that that's probably the effect that it's had on you as we've walked through. Because it just seems like week after week... As we open up James and we begin to dig into the text that's before us, it just seems that he he, he pulls back the veils in our life and exposes areas that we like to hide, areas that we like to cover up, areas of sin that we cherish, that we don't want to see clearly in us. And he just doesn't allow us any room to run and hide. That's the challenge of James is he speaks in very blunt language and he speaks in very direct language and he doesn't leave wiggle room See I like wiggle room I like to be challenged but to have wiggle room to be able to get out of it or to evade it or to You know dodge somehow but James just simply does not allow it He's very direct He's very confrontational And the theme with which James works throughout this entire book is the most important theme of all if you've been tracking with us, you know that the theme that James plays out that ties this whole book together is this theme, this sort of thesis that James has that he wants to prove throughout the book. And that's this theme that, that faith without works is dead and can't save. See, James has got a, he's got a, a sneaky suspicion that in fact seems to be true. And his suspicion is that there are an awful lot of people who identify themselves with Christ by their words, who in reality have no connection to Christ whatsoever. He has a sneaky suspicion that there are a significant group of people in his day and throughout the history of the church, right on up to our day, who attach themselves to the church of Jesus Christ, but have no true connection to Jesus Christ themselves. For various reasons and for various motives They claim to know Christ They claim to be Christian. They claim to be believers But when you pull back the veil of their lives and begin to look at how they live It's very easy to see That they don't know Christ at all because James understands a very important New Testament connection and that is this When Christ possesses our hearts, it changes the way we live If our life does not reflect a life that walks with Christ, then the reality is no matter what we claim, we don't belong to Him. A faith that exists only in a claim but isn't validated by the way the life is lived is a false claim that James will tell us can't save anyone. And so James has been writing this letter. To people within the church And he's been challenging them To look at themselves in the mirror And ask the question Is my faith a faith that exists in claims Only Or Does my life validate The claim that I make to Christ Faith without works Another way of saying it A faith that doesn't work A faith that isn't lived out In the everyday of life Is no faith at all It's a faith that condemns, It doesn't save. It's all talk. And so James has been walking us through these four chapters, sort of walking us through various pieces of life lived on earth. And he's asking us in every one of these little pieces, look at yourself, look at yourself in the mirror, examine yourself. Does the way you navigate this piece of your life reflect the heart that belongs to Christ? He's talked about the issue of how we address trouble and pain in our life. And his thesis is, people who belong to Christ navigate that differently than people who don't. He's talked to us about how we deal with temptation. And he says, those who belong to Christ, through whom Christ possesses their heart, who have submitted their lives to the lordship of Jesus, face temptation a different way than people around them in the world. He said to us, If that isn't enough, let's talk about how we talk. Let's talk about our mouths. Those who belong to Christ speak differently than the people around them. If that isn't enough, he says, well, let's look at how we treat other people. How is it that we treat other people? How is it that we treat particularly those who are poor? Christ followers treat the poor and the disadvantaged differently than the world around them treats the poor and the disadvantaged. Christ followers don't show favoritism to people because they have money. The world does. He goes on to talk to us about how we live in relationship to the world around us, to the whole world system that revolves around us in which we find ourselves. He says, look, if you belong to Christ, the way you live your life in relation to the world around you is going to be different than the way your lost friends live their lives in relation to the world around you. They in fact live lives that 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 display a love for the world around them, But you you belong to jesus You love christ with all your heart soul mind and strength You're not in love with the world and the things of the world And most recently in chapter four he says listen if you love christ if your faith is genuine It will show up in how you plan for your future Those around you, those who don't know Christ, they plan for the future with no view of God at all. As though they are the only ones who matter. And as though life on this earth is the only life that matters. But if you know Christ, that's not how you live. That's not how you look for the future. It's everything about your future planning is in submission to the will of God. In recognition that God is ultimately sovereign and God has a plan. And even though we make plans and we sort of plot our course for the future, God is the one who is in control and we're completely submissive to what His will is for our life. And so we get to chapter 5. And James introduces us to one other area that he has hinted at throughout his book, but now comes at in a full frontal assault. And beginning in verse 1 Listen to what James says of chapter 5 He says come now you rich Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten Your gold and silver have corroded And their corrosion will be evidence against you And will eat your flesh like fire You've laid up treasure in the last days Behold The wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And so James introduces us to a whole new world in which we need to look at ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves the question, does the way I navigate this piece of my life reflect a living faith in the Lord Jesus? And that category of life is how is it we handle our wealth and our possessions. James is going to make the case here that those who belong to the Lord Jesus are going to navigate remarkably differently in relation to their wealth and possessions than the people around them in the world who don't know Christ. But there's going to be a marked difference in how they navigate this piece of their lives. And James gives us this area by Laying it out to us is sort of an excoriating sort of condemnation of the wealthy who exist in his day Who might be reading or hearing read his letter? The Bible has an awful lot to say to us about how we handle our money and our wealth and our possessions God is clearly concerned about this particular area of our lives Best I can see the Bible has about 500 verses that speak to us on prayer There are about 2,350 that talk to us about how we handle our money and possessions. In fact, the Bible speaks more about money than it does about heaven, hell, and the end times all put together and added up. And you say, well, why is God so concerned about our money? Why is God so concerned about talking about how we navigate life in the area of our money and our possessions? I think the answer to that question is simply, He knows us better than we know ourselves. And He knows how much we're going to struggle with this piece of our lives. He knows that our money and our possessions and our wealth are going to be for us the largest competitor in our hearts for our love. They are going to be the largest competitor with Him for possession of our hearts. In Matthew chapter 6 verse 21, Jesus said it this way. He said, where your treasure is, there your, your heart will be also. Figure out what a man treasures, what he truly loves, and you'll know what he's given his heart to. Now, as we think about this issue, we need to make a couple of statements right at the outset. Money itself is not what's being condemned. Wealth is not what's being condemned. In fact, money itself, possessions, wealth, is in fact a rather neutral sort of commodity. It's a, it's a medium of exchange. It's, it's, it's rather by itself, on the surface, uncomplicated. The problem is not with money. The problem is with how men deal with money. Jesus sums it up in Matthew 6, verse 24, when he says this No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and he'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't serve two masters. You'll be devoted to one and not devoted to the other. You can't have it both ways. Your heart is going to be given over to Christ and you're going to love Him and serve Him or your heart is going to be given over to your money and your wealth and your possessions and you're going to be devoted to them and serve and worship them. You, it, it, you can't have it two ways. It's one way or the other. It's not the money it's the problem. It's our heart's disposition toward the money, toward the wealth. Now, let me give you four quick sort of initial thoughts on money and wealth. I don't want to expand on these for time's sake. I just want to lay them out here. Some things we need to understand sort of as a foundation of launching into this. Number one, and that's wealth is not inherently evil. Wealth is not inherently evil. This is a clear, a clear truth in the Scriptures. In fact, as we trek from the Old Testament over to the New, we find examples of, of multiple wealthy men and women Who also honor God with their lives who are faithful God-fearing people who love the Lord with all their heart soul mind and strength They just happen to have wealth and money The tail side of that is this poverty is not inherently spiritual Poverty is not inherently spiritual In fact, if you look at the Proverbs the Proverbs have a lot to say about the lazy man and he talks about the lazy man living in poverty, and there's nothing particularly spiritual about being lazy and poor. So poverty is not inherently spiritual, and wealth is not inherently evil. The danger is not in possessing, possessing wealth or possession of wealth. The danger is in our wealth possessing us. That's the problem. J.C. Ryle said it this way, He said, let us all be on guard against the love of money. It's the love of money that's the issue. That's what Jesus said. The world is full of it in our days. The plague is abroad. Thousands who would abhor the idea of worshiping juggernaut, an idol, are not ashamed to make an idol of gold. We're all liable to the infection from the least to the greatest. We may love money without having it, just as we may have money without loving it. It's an evil that works very deceitfully. It carries us captive before we are aware of its chains. Once, let it get the mastery and it will harden, paralyze, scorch, freeze, blight, and wither our souls. It overthrew an apostle of Christ. Let us take heed that it doesn't overthrow us. One link, one leak may sink a ship. One unmortified sin may ruin a soul. The phrase in the middle of that was so telling to me We may love money Without having it And we may have money without loving it Both are possible And that's really relevant to us this morning Because I think there's probably a piece of you There's like a piece of me when I ran into this text The first time And I began to read it And I thought The first few words Come now you rich I thought Finally 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 James is giving me some relief Finally he's talking to somebody other than me Finally I can get a break and I can relax and I can say go get him James While I eat a taco or something But not so fast Who exactly are the rich? See, there's a part of me that wants to say, as long as Kiowa Island is populated with people, I can't be rich. As long as there are people who live in the peninsula of downtown Charleston and multi-million dollar homes that face the battery, that's who's rich, and that's not me. I would live in the suburbs. People have lots more money than me. I'm not a rich guy. But it's all relative, isn't it? If I want to use as the basis of comparison the people who live on Kiowa Island, then I can justify the fact that I'm not rich. But what if I compare myself to the vast majority of the globe around me? I'm an extravagantly wealthy man, and so are you. The vast majority of the people who live on this planet are poor, horribly poor. In, compared, in comparison to the poorest of us in this room. So this attitude of, of richness versus poor is really a matter of comparison. And it's one that we have to search our hearts and ask the question, we can't, can, can I really eliminate myself from the condemnation that James brings here? Am I really able to sit back and say, no, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not the rich? No. J.C. Ryle says... We may love money without having it. In other words, money can captivate our soul even if we don't have as much as someone else. It can drive our hearts even if there is someone who's richer than us. And so the message may be directed at the wealthy, but in some sense all of us are the wealthy. And even if we aren't the wealthy as much as somebody else is wealthy, the same sort of chain can wrap itself around our hearts and sabotage our soul as it does for the Those that we see as wealthy beyond us The danger is not in our possessing wealth It's in the potential for our wealth to possess us And then finally the danger is not in the amount of wealth we have But it's our attitude and our affections toward what we have Thomas Watson says it this way Water is useful to the ship and helps it to sail better to heaven But let the water get into the ship If it's not pumped out, it drowns the ship So riches are useful and convenient in our passage. We sail more comfortably with them through the troubles of this world. But if the water gets into the ship, if love of riches gets into the heart, then we're drowned by them. We're drowned by them. And so James speaks to a particular class of people in his day, but James, in some sense, he speaks to us all. So to whom is James actually speaking in his context? He begins by verse 1 saying, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are come upon you. James starts this with just a bold and stunning rebuke. Now, he starts it kind of like he started uh, back in in chapter 4, in our last passage. In chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and do this or that. And in verse 1 of chapter 5, he starts it the same way. Come now, you rich. That come now is just sort of a, hey, wake up, listen up, pay attention. Don't ignore me. What I've got to say is important, and you need to snap to and listen to it. And what James has to say is a bold and a stunning rebuke. It's a call to repentance. He says, wake up, snap out of it, pay attention, you rich people. Now, there's great debate exactly who James is speaking to here. If you read a bunch of commentaries, then you'll find different answers to the question. Uh, And and sort of the answers run the gamut. Some would argue that James is speaking to wealthy people within the church. Uh, And they would say that really it seems that most of what James is writing has to be Is Intended for the church. It's in that context that it's intended to be read and who else would pay any attention to it other than people in the church And throughout the book of James we see him talking about brothers rather often So the idea must be that there are rich people within the church whom James is wanting to call to an account There are others who would argue the opposite. No, no They would say James is talking to the rich people who are outside of the church who are persecuting the poor within the church and they would point to things like, they would say, James says, see, come now, you rich. He doesn't talk to them as though they're brothers. He talks about you rich like they're out there somewhere. There's a lot of debate about this. It seems to me a whole bunch of to-do about nothing because I think perhaps James might have in in mind both categories of people. He may be speaking to some within the body of Christ who have a measure of wealth and for whom there is a great danger that this wealth might possess their hearts. And he may be speaking at the same time as sort of a, a prophetic declaration to any in the community around who might hear that they might snap to and come to attention be alerted to their danger in chapter 4 verse 13 james is addressing people who spend their days as if god wasn't their lord in chapter 5 verses 1 through 6 james is addressing those who spend their money as though god isn't the lord that's a close connection And we will say, well, what does James hope to accomplish by this? What does he want to get out of this? Why does he write this down? I think there are a couple of things that James has in mind. On the one hand, he wants to warn the wealthy because disaster, as he's going to say, is coming upon them. It's getting ready to happen. There's a judgment that's coming and they are liable for the judgment and God is going to destroy them and all of their wealth and possessions. So there is a stern warning to those for whom wealth has captivated their heart. But James, I think, also wants to comfort to comfort and assure and protect the poor He wants them to know Those who are poor and persecuted And being taken advantage of That, that the injustice that is happening in their lives is not, uh, is not over God's head That He sees it and that He knows it And that He will in fact address it John Calvin says James has a regard to the faithful That they hearing of the miserable end of the rich Might not envy their fortune And also that knowing that God would be the avenger of wrongs they've suffered, they might with a calm and resigned mind bear them. So James may be writing in order for the poor uh, disadvantaged who are being taken advantage of within that congregation might understand that they're suffering in the broader context of God's sovereignty and understand that even though right now it seems that the wealthy are getting by, with taking advantage of them, that God keeps accounts, that God sees all things, and that one day God is going to address all wrongs. So James says, come now you rich, weep and howl. This language for weep and howl is vivid language. I mean, he's not talking about, hey, just repent a little bit. He's saying your rich need to weep and howl. These are are Old Testament words that are words associated with what you do when someone dear to you dies. It's the, the weeping and the howling of a deep grief that's unspeakable and unquenchable. It's words that describe an intense outburst of despairing, violent, uncontrollable grief. James is calling the rich to a vivid and visible and deep sort of repentance for the way that they've handled and loved their money and their wealth. So, what's the problem? What's James, uh, what's, what's he so, what's he so up, uptight about the, the, these rich people for? What's the current situation? Well, James is going to tell us that they're living fat, dumb, and happy on top of the world, living large. Living for themselves. And they're taking advantage of other people in the process. He says, miseries are coming upon you. That word miseries is just a word for God's judgment. It's coming. You're living carefree lives now. You're living it up. But God's judgment is coming. And it's going to be overwhelming. If you only knew what was coming down the line toward you, you would weep and you would wail right now. The reality is that their riches and their wealth have blinded them to what's coming They think all is well They think life is grand They think they're living on top of the world and they're going to ride out their days in luxury and ease And james says you should be weeping and wailing Because of what god's getting ready to bring to you It's so devastating And what god is going to bring to you is a misery and a devastation that your money can't buy you out of Jesus said something similar in Luke 6, verse 24 and following. He said, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Same scenario, the same rebuke, the same warning. The problem with these people to whom James is writing is not that they are wealthy. The problem is how they have acquired their wealth and their heart's disposition toward their wealth. And James is going to expose all of that in this text. He's going to give us some sort of some characteristics of the misuse of wealth. And he gives us the first characteristic in verses 2 and 3. He's going to tell us and tell them that their wealth has been selfishly hoarded Listen to what he says your riches have rotted and your garments are moth eaten your gold and silver have corroded And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire you have laid up treasure in the last days In order to understand this we need to understand what constituted wealth in james's day If you were wealthy your wealth sort of manifested in three sort of areas of your life they manifested in the area of food They manifested in the area of clothing and they manifested in the area of sort of riches gold and silver Not altogether different from from our culture, right? Maybe some parallels But in in james day where many were starving the wealthy You knew they were wealthy because they were fat and they had plenty of food. They weren't hungry They didn't worry about where they were getting their next meal The wealthy displayed their wealth in the way that they dressed. They dressed in fine clothing, fine clothing inlaid with with jewels and, and expensive things and put their sort of wealth on display in their clothing. And of course, their gold and their silver, the accumulation of mediums of exchange, also were symbolic of their great wealth. Probably not so different than today. Is there a way that, we, that our wealth can be manifest in the way that we approach food and eat in a way that isn't healthy and is perhaps ungodly? You can nod your head yes if you think so or no if you don't think so. Okay. Is there a way that we can manifest our wealth in sinful ways by displaying it in certain ways of dress? I'm just going to pause here for a second and ask this question. Because I heard somebody told me that there was an important wedding that took place this weekend Did did, you, did did somebody get married somewhere? Was it on TV? I think somebody talked about that and saw that How many of you I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand now that I said it that way. That's awful. I wouldn't do that if you happen to see the news reports and the photos Of a certain wedding that took place was wealth on display in clothing in any sort of vivid way in that environment The answer to that question is yes. Let's put it this way. That crowd wasn't dressed like us. Right? So there's a parallel here. Food, clothing, material possessions. And what James says about these things is not just that they have food and that they have clothes and that they have gold and silver. Listen to how he says it. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Now, what's this all about? What James is saying is, you've got so much of all of these things, you can't even possibly use it all. You've got so much food that you could never eat it. You've just hoarded it and much of it is just rotting. It's sitting there rotting. You don't even need it and you'll never eat it. You've got so many clothes. You've got so much fine clothing that you could never possibly wear it. Your closet is overflowing with clothing that you'll never wear. The only purpose it serves right now is food for moths. Your gold and your silver. You have so many things made out of gold and silver that you never even touch, you never even use. They, they just sit around and they tarnish. You never even polish them because you don't even use them. It's a picture of people who have an abundance of so many of these things that they just selfishly hoarded them well beyond what they need or could ever use. And so the picture here is a picture of people who have selfishly hoarded wealth. Not because they need it. Not even because they plan to enjoy it. But because they can amass it. And because they want to keep it When you think of this in terms of the cultural context in which James writes where there's a massive gulf between the very rich and the very poor Where there was a very small percentage of people who were very rich there was little to no middle class and there was a massive amount of the poor a massive amount of the poor, among whom most could have perhaps one good cloak for the wintertime. One good pair of shoes to get them back and forth on the rough terrain. And in the context of that kind of a culture, there are some wealthy who have hoarded up mountains of stuff that's just rotting and going to waste. Do you see the contrast? Most people were poor. Most people had just enough to get by. And these wealthy were hoarding stuff that they could never even use. You know, Jesus had given clear instructions already about how we're to lay up treasures. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, he says this, Don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure where? In heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves can't break in and steal... And Jesus is making this statement that James is actually trying to argue as well, which is just simply this. People who love the Lord Jesus, whose hearts are sold out to Christ, do not selfishly hoard for themselves piles and piles of stuff here. They lay up for themselves, and they take great joy and great pleasure in laying up a different kind of a treasure, a treasure that doesn't have value here, a treasure that has value for all eternity. They rejoice to let earthly treasure go in order to lay up a different kind of treasure. They understand that the, that the treasures of this earth have value and that value is limited to this sphere. And when they die, it will be useless and meaningless and valueless. And so they're glad to give it up for the benefit of someone else in order to lay up a treasure that's eternal. So is it, why, why is it that people hoard stuff on earth? I mean, it's such an issue in our culture. There's even a TV show, right, called Hoarders. Have you ever seen that TV show? Have you ever seen the TV show Hoarders? It, I don't know if it's still on or not, but there, I saw a couple episodes of that where people just, they were so consumed by the need to have things that their whole homes were just packed to the brim with stuff. Stuff that they would never use or even even opened. Just amassing of things. Why is it that people hoard wealth here? Well, for some people, it's a game for some people. It's just a game They love they they live on sort of the adrenaline that comes from Winning and getting it over on somebody else and and winning the deal and making the dollar But for most For most people hoard things here because they believe it provides them some sort of security They hoard up stuff because they feel like their their wealth secures them. They believe it protects them against sort of the uncertain future. If I can uh, amass enough wealth, then I can sort of hedge myself against any uncertainties down the road. You know, one day I might get sick and I might have to go to the hospital or I might get cancer and I might need a lot of things, so I'm going to hoard all this stuff up just in case that happens. I won't have to worry about getting sick. I won't have to worry about getting cancer because I have, my, I have my money put away for that. I'm secure. They hedge themselves against an economic downturn, right? If I can just store up enough wealth right now, I don't have to worry about what happens in the economy. If I can just accumulate enough things and enough wealth and I can get that stuff rolling in the right way, it doesn't matter what happens in the economy. If the economy takes a downturn, I'm secure. I'm safe. My wealth has secured me. In fact, people look to their wealth to secure them against almost any contingency because in our culture, there's very few things that can happen to you that if you have enough money, you can't get out of it. You can't buy your way out of it, right? And so people look to their money and their wealth, which they hoard for some sort of security in life. And that's where the problem lies, my friends. Because from the very beginning... God has always called His people to look to Him for their security, not to their wealth. In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament book of Exodus chapter 16 You remember when God had delivered his people out of enslavement to to the Egyptians And they were heading from Egypt over toward the promised land God was teaching them what it looks like to walk and live as his people And he was teaching them, building into them principles that they needed to understand So that when they got to the promised land And when wealth came their way They would know how to navigate with it And they would know how to live in light of it And so one of the lessons he needed to teach them was that they needed to look to him every day For their security and for their provision and the way he went about doing that was interesting One of the biggest challenges they had going from egypt to the promised land was they were regularly hungry And so god Supplied that need in exodus chapter 16 verse 4 the lord said to moses behold i'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I might test them whether they will walk in my law or not. In verse 16 of Exodus 1, excuse me, Exodus 16, this is what the Lord has commanded gather of it each one of you. As much as he can eat, you shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack Each of them gathered as much as he could and moses said to them. Let no one leave any of it over till the morning But they didn't listen to moses some left part of it till the morning And it bred worms and stank And moses was angry with them What was all this about? God's raining bread from heaven for them to eat and he says to them you go out every day and you get how much? You get just enough enough for you and those who live in your tent You go out and you gather enough for you and your family to eat and you bring it in and everybody will have what they need I will supply your daily portion. The one caveat is don't even for a second think about trying to do what? To hoard it and put some aside for tomorrow It won't work some tried it and what happened? Bread worms and rotted What was all that about? Why didn't God just give them enough for a week? God wanted them to always look every day to Him for their security and their provision and not to the stuff. And so He he disciplined them every day to wake up in the morning and to look outside and to expect God to provide for that day and to go out and receive what God had provided and enjoy it for their family and relish the provision of the Lord and find their security in Him so that when they go to bed at night, they can rest their head and go to sleep because they know, they know when they wake up in the morning and they open the windows, they're going to see the manna for the next day out there. They don't have to question it. Because God is a God who loves His people and provides. He is their security, trust, and provision. That was all about God training them in that way. And God's people have always needed to look to Him for our daily provision and our security. When we hoard up for ourselves masses of wealth, what we are in reality doing is we're saying, God, I don't trust that you're going to provide for my tomorrow, so I'm going to hoard it up and take care of that myself. I'm not sure that if I get sick, you'll take care of me. So I'm going to make sure I have enough to take care of myself God, I'm not sure if the economy takes a downturn That you're going to provide for the needs of me and my family So I'm going to hedge everything I've got And do everything I can to take care of myself The great danger of earthly wealth is this We place our security and trust in the stuff And not in God Our wealth becomes for us a functional God. We look to it for our comfort. We look to it for our hope. We look to it for our confidence. Instead of looking to Him for those things. And that's exactly what these wealthy, rich people were doing in James Day. They were hoarding so much. They were selfishly hoarding as much as they could to hedge their bets against the future. And this is such a great temptation for believers in a place like America, the wealthiest nation in the world, the wealthiest nation that has ever existed in the world, in which you and I live. We have so much, so much wealth. We can functionally live most days as though we have no need for God because we have everything we need and more. We don't have to wake up and look out the window and wonder, did God bring down manna today for me to make it? Because he's supplied so much that we don't even think about such things. And the problem is, like J.C. Ryle says, it's a deceptive thing. We don't even realize our enslavement to this and, until certain things happen. You know when we realize that we're enslaved to our money and wealth? is when some of it gets taken away. Right? When some of it gets taken away. How do we react to it? Panic and desperation. It's a sign. It's a sign that our security is in the stuff that we've accumulated and not the God who gives it. Well, James says this is foolish. You rich, you need to be weeping and wailing because you've selfishly hoarded all of this stuff. It's rotting and it's corroding. And it's not just that it's rotting and corroding But that rot and that corrosion Is going to be exhibit number one When you stand before the Lord in judgment Did you catch that? Your riches have rotted Your gold and silver have corroded And their corrosion will be evidence against you And will eat your flesh like fire James says to these wealthy people You selfishly hoarded the stuff while the poor around you were dying. And there's a misery that's coming. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. And you're going to stand before Him. And you're going to stand before Him in judgment. And exhibit number one in the court case against you is going to be the pile of your rotting, corroded stuff that you never used and never needed but looked to for your security and trust. And it's going to, the stuff is going to testify against you. When we think of a court scene, we usually think of people testifying against us, right? James is saying, your stuff, it can't speak, but its presence will testify to the nature of your heart. And there will be no way to evade it. Because it's your stuff that you hoarded. And it will be the source of your destruction. You see, that's the ultimate folly of trusting in our wealth. Wealth promises to us security and blessing and joy. But when we trust in it, and we find our security in it, it produces destruction. So James comes at those who selfishly hoard. Characteristic of the misuse of wealth, it's selfishly hoarded. That's the first one. We'll get the other two next week. But I want you to think through this for a moment. How do we apply this to our lives? How do we, how do we at a possibly, in a culture like ours, apply this? How do we actually, honestly, evaluate, evaluate ourselves in light of this? You know, I thought through this this week. And I, there's no legalistic way to say how much is enough. How much is too much. You need this many dollars, not that many dollars. Or you need this size of a home, not that size of a home. Or you need this many clothes in your closet, but not that many. There's no legalistic way to sort of put rules out there on this stuff. Because it's not about the amount. It's about the heart. So I just sort of fashioned some questions for me to think about and for you to ask of yourself. And I'm just going to put them out there for you to think about as we sort of draw this to a conclusion. The first question, are we guilty of selfishly hoarding wealth? Are we guilty of selfishly hoarding wealth? Is there any part of that rebuke that rings true of us? Is there food and clothing and possessions that are stockpiled and rotting that we neither need nor use? Are we hoarding up things and putting our security and trust in those things instead of the Lord? Is it easy for us to give things away? I think that's a good question. Is it easy for us to give things away? Is it easy for us to get rid of things we're not using? If it's not, if it's hard, if it's hard to let loose of our stuff, maybe that's a sign. Another question I thought of is this. Does our approach to the accumulation of wealth testify to faith and trust in God? in other words if somebody looked at my life and looked at everything that I had and how I manage the things that I have would they walk away saying now that's a man who clearly loves the Lord Jesus Christ whose heart is captivated by Him or would the way that I manage my things and my wealth and my possessions leave a fuzzy view in their minds does my approach to the accumulation of wealth testify to faith and trust in God And then finally, and this is the question I've been asking myself all week, and it's the one I challenge you to ask yourself and maybe talk about as a family today. At what point do we have enough? At what point do we have enough? I mean, it's a simple question, but it's a hard question. I mean, at what point is it enough? At what point is the house big enough? At what point is the car good enough? At what point is the amount of clothing enough? At what point is the the money in the bank, is it enough? I can't answer that question for you. Not even sure that I can answer it real clearly for me. But it's a question we have to ask. Because I can assure you, we don't want to be the recipients of this kind of a rebuke from James or from the Lord. Because the ones to whom James is speaking are going to stand accountable before the Lord for how they've managed this stuff in their lives and they're going to be devastated at the result. And there is the distinct possibility that among us there are some who would have the same experience if Christ doesn't open our eyes and draw us to weep and wail in repentance before Him and ask Him to open up our hearts and let loose our hands from our stuff. Let's pray together God you are our all-sufficient God We sing about it We read about it in your word And if somebody were to ask us Do we think you are an all-sufficient God We would resoundingly say yes If someone were to ask us Do you believe that God will supply all of your needs According to his riches and glory We would say a resounding yes Yes We even tell other people about how sufficient you are. But Lord, this morning James has called us to an inspection. He's called us to come to attention. He's called us to look at ourselves square in the mirror. He's called us to evaluate our stockpiles of stuff, our wealth and our possessions. And he's called us to ask some hard questions. Are we looking to you practically for our security and trust and provision? Or are we declaring we believe those things while secretly hoarding up for ourselves our wealth, which is where we find our real security? Lord, only you can open our eyes to this. Only you. There is no legalistic standard I can impose. I'd be a fool to try. Only by your Spirit can you give us a realistic view of how we're navigating in this area of our life, this personal area of our life. God, we recognize that our wealth and possessions have a blinding effect in our lives. We can convince ourselves that we're not rich. We can convince ourselves for all the reasons that we have that we need to do these things and have more. But I pray for my friends and for myself this morning As we look in the mirror And as we talk with our families today About what it means At what point do we have enough God would you open our eyes to the truth Would you convict us if we're sinning in this area Would you draw us to repentance And give us the grace to let go And release And to turn our eyes from our stuff to you And find in you everything that we need for today, for tomorrow, and for the future. Lord, we pray that you'd help us with these things and draw us to yourself. For Christ's sake, amen.